to Unleashing Sister Saints, a podcast focused on strengthening women's faith in Jesus Christ and helping them wrestle through the sometimes complex gender and cultural dynamics in the church. I'm Dr. Susan Manson, a global expert in women and leadership, a mom of four, and a devoted member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I love the word unleash, and I use it often. Now, in this week's episode, I am so excited to welcome my friend, Emily Bell McCormick, to the show. Emily is a remarkable woman making a significant impact for girls, women, and others through her nonprofit organization, The Policy Project. Now, we'll talk later about her team's success in policy efforts to provide period products in every Utah public school, as well as to raise funds to create needed teen centers in Utah high schools. Now, prior to The Policy Project, Emily also founded and sold a clothing company, and she has wide experience in communication consulting and has both a bachelor's and master's in that field specifically. So last but not least, Emily is the mother of five, and this was quote from you, wild children, her words, not mine. (laughs) Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to chat with you. Thank you so much. It's so fun to be with you today. So I'll jump right into the questions. I wanted to start by asking you about the life experiences that led you to where you are today. Can you tell us about your growing up years and the influence that shaped you and your interests in the direction you have gone with your career in life at this point? Yeah, that's a big question. That could be like a three I know, I know. (laughs) But I love it. I grew up in a suburb of Salt Lake City and I had a very loving family. I had, um, in my early years, my mother was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And this brain tumor became kind of this all-consuming thing from when I was about 10 years old until she ended up passing away when I was 19. When you ask about like what defining things, I didn't think this at the time, but once you have like the beauty of age and you can get away from a situation, you know, I'm 40, almost 45 now. And I look back at growing up with a mom who was pretty incapacitated. She was really very bedridden and didn't, wasn't able to function in the ways that I saw suburban mothers in Utah who were part of a majority religion functioning. And I think that the chaos that was kind of in our home was something that helped me understand about myself that either I was going to choose to do things or no one else was going to choose for me. So it was really on my shoulders to decide what I wanted to do in life. Now, I will say I had a ton of blessings and privileges in that. I had parents who loved me. I was very strong community. I think one of the gifts of being a member of the church is that community is unmatchable. You know, just people feel a duty to take care of you, whether or not you're in their family. And so we had a lot of support that way. But I knew that my future rested squarely upon my own shoulders. If I wanted to do something, there wasn't going to be somebody's signing me up for a leadership class or soccer or dance, that was going to be on me to do that. And so I think actually out of the chaos and kind of difficulty of those years, but with just enough support from my family, I was, that was one of the greatest things I gleaned was just having it in my own hands. And I love that. I love that um, you just had to lean in and know that you had the capability to do that, right? I'm sure you got comfortable doing that. Yeah, I do think, I think, you know, I had some younger siblings and it was, 
a world in which my dad needed to work all the time. He was self-employed. You know, you've got these insane medical bills and everything. And so there was no one, you know, we laugh about it now, but I started driving at 14, not because I was a cool rebel, because it was like, no one's going to the grocery store. So learned to forge my mom's signature, very young, you know, the checks were a big deal, drove to the grocery store. I know this show is not about doing illegal activities, <laughs> but in the world in which I grew up, it was kind of just necessitated. I had to do those things because nobody else was going to do them. Going to the grocery store, you know, taking care of my younger brother and sister. So tell me a little bit about your college days in terms of your degrees. So you went into the field of communication. So tell me a little bit about your decision in both of those areas. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I look at this and I think, of how I talk to my kids about their future education. I'll kind of say things like, okay, well, you need to consider the lifestyle of this and you need to consider how much money you're going to make, you know, all these things. I went into college. I was basically, again, blessed to be growing up in an environment where a lot of people around me were going to college. So I think I did it more by default than anything else. I was like, okay, I'm done with high school. I guess I'm going to college next. I always loved school, but I just had not envisioned a future beyond and what was right in front of me. I think some of that chaos of home life maybe engendered that. And that's where I was. I was living in the day. So I went to BYU for undergrad. And I remember being a few months into my freshman year and getting a phone call, you know, on the cinder block wall, the landline that had the cord, you know, picking it up and saying hello and then saying, hey, yeah, we need you to declare a major. And I was like, major, a major. Okay, what am I going to do? And I loved, I absolutely loved and was very drawn to political science. But in my mind, I did not, I had not seen that modeled. I didn't know what professions you could go into. I didn't know any kind of career pathway. And everything in life had pointed me in the direction that life is practical and that you need to make practical choices where you can earn a living and make money and take care of the people around you. And so because I'd never seen that model in political science, which is what I think I would have chosen, I decided to do communication. I thought, okay, I've heard about marketing jobs. I know that there are people in journalism. Like I could, there were jobs that I could see. So I chose. And you um, probably saw women in those jobs too. Yeah. You know, I haven't even considered, but you're right. Like that was something that I'd seen women doing. I chose that for undergrad and I chose it again for grad school. And I laugh about this now because obviously my direction has changed. I know we'll talk about this in a minute, but I work in policy now and I'm so passionate. I don't see myself ever really changing. I love policy work. And for a long time, I regretted, I regretted not having done public policy or, you know, um, public administration, those kinds of things in, in school. But what I've realized is that communication is kind of everything. Everything is learning how to message. Everything is learning how to understand what people are telling you and then inform someone of what you think about that. So communication is so key that although I spent a couple of years regretting that choice, I now am so grateful that that is where I developed my skill was that ability to communicate. How did you develop the confidence and desire to start, grow and sell your own business? That's a great question. So after I finished undergrad, I worked for a couple of years in communications and then I went to grad school and then worked for another few years, you know, for different advertising agencies and, and worked in public relations, that kind of stuff. And it actually 
I didn't know that I had that confidence. I think my life has been a, a series of discoveries. <laughs> I don't think you go into something knowing like, this is going to require a lot of confidence and a lot of, you know, a lot of hard work and a lot of, but your life naturally kind of leads that direction. And I would say that what happened was it was actually an opportunity. Somebody kind of brought up this idea about there. We have LDS women who, this was the early 2000s. So you got to reverse back a long time, but LDS women who don't really have a lot of great options where we wear dresses a lot, but we don't have a lot of great options for dresses and that are basically garment standards, you know, that are yeah. covered to the shoulders, down to the knee, high on the chest, like that kind of a thing. And so in this conversation I was having, I just had this moment where I thought, if no one is doing this, no one's making these dresses why not me? Why not me? And that seems like a funny question, but I've said it to myself a billion times since then. Like, if no one else is doing this, why not me? I mean, I can think of a lot of reasons it wouldn't be me, but everyone is going to think of those reasons. So yes. why don't I just do this and jump in? And so I think um, as far as having the confidence, it was more like I'm willing to take this risk and if I think by that point in life, I'd seen model like, well, this person has this really successful company and doesn't have a college degree, which is something that I would think you would must have, you know, and this person has done it and maybe isn't exactly what I pictured. So why not take a chance on myself? And if it doesn't work out, I'm really into education and I'm going to learn from this experience. So I think I was able, it was a hearty dose of like, I'm very used to failure. I've had many, many of them. I think that most people who've had any successes have had many more failures. I don't so think a lot of people know that because I have really had failures and thing this or after this, after this, but you just kind of get used to it and you don't look at it as a failure. You shift it to, okay, I learned this and this and this, and it's yes. okay. Uh, but a lot of people that have come to me have said, well, I failed in this and it's really set them back to do anything else. And I think I love that you mentioned that, Emily. Yeah, no, and I think you're right. I mean, that whole piece, if we can reframe our failures as education, it's so much more impactful. You know, it is for us, but then it ends up helping us really act on our gifts, right? Because we're able to be like, eh, that was a loss. I mean, many, many, many failures. And so that's led to some great successes as well. And so just having that openness to, hey, I'm willing to learn what I'm going to learn from this. And if it ends up failing, okay. And if it ends up succeeding, okay, I'll learn on either end. So I think the clothing company really was from a place of, you know, from that place, like I'm willing to be educated, I'm willing to take a risk. And ultimately, why not? Why would I not? I love that. So let's shift now. I'm looking at our time and it's moving so quick. But I wanted to have you talk about your early motherhood and what that looked like for you and how you balanced your desire and beliefs surrounding motherhood with that with sometimes the cultural expectations and pressures, and then what you've decided to do? That's a beautiful question. And I have a lot of emotion around that question. You know, when I grew up, I mentioned kind of where I was born and raised. I didn't have any models of females 
who were working. Now that was my very small world. This was pre-internet, you know, so I did not see that model. I should say there was one woman in our ward growing up who worked. She was a professor. And I remember people in our ward saying, that's okay for her to work because she's divorced because her husband made some bad choices. And so that was, you know, the world in which I kind of saw, oh, okay, it's okay to work if your husband makes bad choices and you get divorced, you know? And so it was a very clunky, uncomfortable time for me, to be honest, Susan. I think like entering motherhood, I had for my first child, I was super excited. It was postgraduate school. I was working. I realized this as I'm talking through these moments in my life, it seems like I was a pretty clueless human because <laughs> as well, I kind of thought, okay, so I guess I just stay and I I want my maternity leave. And then I guess I'll get that feeling that I should quit after my maternity, once my child is born, because I don't really want to quit my job. I did not know. I had not seen it modeled in the version of being an LDS woman that I had seen. I hadn't seen it modeled. Now, women growing up in other countries are seeing that modeled very differently than I did. And I can appreciate that. I just hadn't seen it. So I remember having my first kid, um, who I adore more than obviously anything, and being on maternity leave and being excited to go back to work and having these massive feelings of guilt, like, I'm not supposed to want to go back to work. I think I'm supposed to quit at the end of maternity leave. Like that's what I've seen. And I think that's what I'm supposed to do. But I feel very conflicted about it. So I remember at the end of this maternity leave, kind of negotiating with my boss, like, hey, can I work half time? And I just want to note that it wasn't because I did feel torn. I did want to be with my child, but actually parenting a small child felt very, very uncomfortable to me mm-hmm. and work felt more comfortable. I mean, which makes sense. That's what I'd done my whole life. I had, I, I kind of parented my younger siblings, but it was not my comfort zone. And so I think that my boss was probably like, oh, this is so she can be home with her kid, which it was, but my more natural comfort was for sure being at work. And so we negotiated something where I could be home part of the time and at work part of the time. And my more comfortable hours were at work. And so that's kind of like an interesting thing to admit. It wasn't that I loved it more. It was that that was a reality. Then when I started the clothing company, um, I was having more kids. I always wanted like a pretty large family. I, in my head was this three to five goal and three to five kids. And they were some clunky years, you know, they were years where I felt very conflicted about having my kids cared for by someone else. So I did a lot of putting them down for a nap and working a ton while they were asleep in the very, very early mornings and very late. And it was, and my husband was in a residency program. So he was not overly engaged for those first early years. And it it felt like the whole world was on my shoulders. It was a burden. I would never want to have my daughter's or sons repeat, you know, I would recommendations and suggestions for them so that they didn't kind of trudge through it in that way. But it was a very tricky time. I came into my own, but it took many years to get there. I know the feeling. So you speak a lot about family and your love of our theology and the church of eternal families and the sealing power. Now, after three biological children, you and your husband adopted two Black children. What led to that opportunity that you took? Yeah, you know, I'd always kind of had this thought, like ever since I was younger, 
I'd had this idea of maybe adopting. After my third child, I was diagnosed with a health problem that was related to pregnancy. And I think that helped push me over the edge and think like, okay, we need to adopt. I want to adopt. I'd always wanted to. I don't know if I ever would have gotten there if I wouldn't have had this like health issue. But I think because of that, it ended up being such a huge gift because it pushed me over the edge and helped us make the decision to adopt. And it has been one of the most magnificent experiences. I mean, I think to be a human and have the ability to have, you know, birthed children, but also adopted children, I feel like I kind of won the lottery with that, having the experience of building families in multiple ways. Because as you and I know, you know, families look different for everyone. And not all families are biological kids. You know, I have an adopted niece. Now she's not like legally adopted, but she will forever be my niece, you know, comes to Christmas, comes to everything because I just need her in my family. I think we create the families we want. And that happens in many, many, many different ways. And families look all kinds of ways. And I love that part of of our belief system. So how has that experience shaped your beliefs both around family, but about our heavenly parents' love for all of their children? Yeah, that's a very, I love that question. You know, I think that that is probably the thing that most drove me to adoption was just this idea that like our heavenly parents, our heavenly mother, our heavenly father, they are, they love their children. They love them equally. They love them, you know, intensely. They have an intense interest, each individual's ability to live a fulfilling life and have opportunities that would allow them to feel like they got to act on their talents. And to me, that is what I grew up learning in the church was that we, the greatest manifestation of God's love for us is in our ability to act on opportunities and to use the talents we've been given. Now, what I could see in the world was that some of God's, you know, of our heavenly parents' children were not given the same opportunities as others, you know? And so I really feel called and interested in how can I help expand those opportunities for God's children. And so I will just, I will say that it was with adoption and with this idea of the ceiling power, it was, it's been such an incredible thing to understand the ceiling in a totally different way. We're very accustomed to this idea in the LDS uh, world that we get married, we see, we get sealed to someone, right? And that when we become sealed, I am now sealed to my husband, to his family. They're now my family because we are sealed together. Now, where I saw this doctrine kind of stopping in the minds of other people is when I talk about my children, this seems like it was very re- revolutionary. And for some reason, it just wasn't to me. When I was sealed to my son and my daughter, what happened was then I was sealed to their biological families, just like I was sealed to my husband's biological family, right? Like that is the power of a ceiling, right? Like we're all sealed together. And to me, the ceiling power is bringing all of God's children, just kind of meshing our lives together in a way where we are shared and we, and our life experiences are shared. And I had several instances, you know, after being sealed to them where I could fill the ancestors of all of the people in my life, my biological ancestors, my, you know, the people on my husband's side, the people on my children's side and my adopted children's side, where I could feel their angels, like rooting for our family, wanting us to get through the hard times, wanting us to survive the struggle of life, wanting them to succeed, but also wanting me to succeed. And that is one of the most impactful doctrines we have 
We are connected to something beyond our lives. We are connected to something bigger. We are sealed to people who have gone before us, who know what life looks like, who can see the struggles we face and who are rooting for us and wanting us to help each other and to create like communities that are going to succeed. So I love that. Oh my gosh. I've never thought about that either. That whole connection to adopted kids, families and extended families. Think there's no difference between being sold to a, you know, husband or wife or a child, right? Like you bring all those people, you accept all their people into your life. And so kind of an amazing thing. Okay, last question. And I know we're pushing our time here, but we can't end without giving you a chance to talk about, you know, the policy project, which you are the president and founder of, and you have spearheaded a few different really initiatives that have been so popular here in the state of Utah. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is so as I was talking about the ability to act on the talents and opportunities you've been given, that has been a key thing in my life. And I would say, you know, after years of working in kind of communication and doing some consulting and things, I really became very interested in the human experience and different people's access to opportunity. And I was really looking for a way that I plugged into that conversation. Like I believe so strongly, uh, I have such a deep and needed belief in Christ and this idea that he is the great equalizer. You know, our savior is our savior because what he can do is he can take pain and inequities and all these things we experience in this life and change that for everyone, right? Because otherwise life Because I could see like, man, I've been given so, so much. I have every opportunity in the world. And yet I am sitting in the same country, in the same city as someone else who has been given none of these. You know, their parents were, you know, had substance abuse problems. They were abused in many, many ways. Like all these things, like how could that possibly, how can we coexist on the same planet at the same time. And I have, I also have the added benefit of knowing about Christ, you know, which to me yes. is like, you know, a, a huge gift. And what I think I spent a lot of years praying about it, I spent a lot of sleepless nights, like ruminating on this fact that like, I cannot, how can I reach these people that really need this opportunity? And where I landed by the literal grace of our heavenly parents was I, after reading books and actually going to visit my parents who were on a mission in South Africa and learning about apartheid and how there was this government system that really made it so the wealth division, you had the uber wealthy that were 10% of the population and extreme poverty for 90% of the population. And I think like being able to enter a system with new eyes, like stepping, it's hard in our own spaces to see the problems, but being able to step and and have that outside perspective and be like oh my gosh this is a this is a matter of policy you know this is an issue that is tied to the government and what laws there we're making and so coming at, i just had that realization that that was the way that i wanted to have an impact in this world and Your so boss. i was going to use yeah i was going to use my opportunities and my talents i used them in different ways in the past And now I was going to take those same things that I developed then and shift it to something that I was feeling so much passion, but I should say I was pretty haunted by it. You know, it was more than passion. It was a big haunting for me. It was a very 
heavy burden seeing like, what can I do? And it came together, you know, like I struggled for a few years, it, it being very small, really just me like hacking away, got one law changed and then realizing like I got so lonely and desperate in the work. You know, I remember saying a prayer where I just kind of told our heavenly parents, you know, I was like, here's the deal. I'm going to get period products in schools. And then I'm out. I am so tired. I am out. You know, I got to be done with the work because it's not sustainable. I've got these five kids and I've got, and the thing that I did not see coming that I consider such a miracle in my life is that the second that I said that, and this it was years in, like I said, I had angels, like earthly angels come to me. I already knew my heavenly angels were there, like working for me, but I had like incredible humans who were, had their own gifts and talents that I didn't even know the work needed, you know, and someone who was very talented at social media, somebody who was very talented at policy, somebody who was very talented at organizational structure, like these weird talents that you're like, this doesn't need that like more or less, yes, I had to ask them, but they presented themselves, you know, I saw them and, and asked them and it was without hesitation that they joined the work. And as I'm getting, you know, full body chills that like, what a gift that was for me. You're making um, me cry. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh, me too. I never get to talk. I talk about policy work constantly, but as you know, you never get to bring in the spiritual side, yes. you know, typically I'm not it's talking fun. about it. So it's fun to be able to like, really give that side of the story. It felt very, and then I just found myself on my knees figuratively because something about me is I have such like ADD, I have to walk and pray. And so (laughs) I should say walking and praying and just thanking our heavenly parents that these people were there because the second they came, all of my energy came back, but I needed the other humans to buoy up the work. I needed them and, and the work needed them. I could never have scaled this and done what the policy project has been able to do without these other people at this level. And so it's a gift. And, you know, it's something that I think is really resonated in this time where politics are so, so, so polarized, you know, and very few of us, 85, 90% of us don't feel like we relate to either of the polarizations. So finding this middle ground where we can say, hey, let's look at policy as a more holistic, like stop forcing me into a right or a left. Let me just think of this as like, what is the best good for our community? Where does our where do our tax dollars get their biggest? How do you unite? How do you unite people? Yeah. How do we, because all we're doing is basically saying like, where are the issues and how do we go upstream of these? How do we fix a problem before it starts? And that's godly work to me. You know, that's work of like a heavenly mother who knows us, who knows that her girl's got to get crap done, you know, and a heavenly father who knows the same, that they're not going to stop until it is done. And so I think that is God's work to me. And that is my greatest gift is being able to perform this work for sure. And what I love about that is, you know, I'm a good 15, 20 years, well, not 20 years older than you, but but I fought with myself for so many years that I had these drives and I had, my mind was going all the time. And of course I'm a bit ADHD too. And I'm like trying to shut them down. It's like, no, I need to cook more. I need to do these things because that is what I'm told to do. And so really wrestling with shutting that down and then realizing that God made me right. He made me this way so that I could make the impact 
he and my heavenly mother need me to make. And I love your wrestle too. You had similar wrestles, but you just lean in to the gifts that God has given you. And mm -hmm. when you get, I could tell by your face, people can't see your face now, but that call came and continues to come. And I love that. Emily, any thoughts from that? No, I appreciate what you say. I think I, yeah, that kind of pushing this down, it took years and years. And, and I feel, I think that actually just in my personal history, that was maybe a gift for me of growing up in chaos yeah. was I worried a lot about my kids that I wasn't going to be the standard mom that I saw in a very high functioning culture and society around me. And I honor the, the women who are parent full-time. I truly do because that I can see how important their role is in building community yeah. and not be overemphasized. Like they, sometimes I'll hear women who don't have jobs outside the home say, oh gosh, I, I'm not doing anything you know, like you're doing or like this other person's doing, or I think all the time, like you were, yeah, you're not doing anything. You're just the backbone of society. You're yes. just holding up all together. So like, <laughs> please keep doing it. But for me personally, I fought it for many, many years. And when I finally did lean in and just say, you know what? I grew up in chaos. I'm a little crazy. I'm a lot crazy, but we're doing okay. <laughs> and I think of my kids, like, I'm sure that they'll have very interesting commentary about their youth and going, you know, my son at age five holding up a, a poster that says tampons for all that may not be the average five-year-old's experience but I've got to think that God our heavenly parents they knew that they were coming to me they knew that I've really tried to lean in like I'm never going to make a good meal ever in their lives but what I can do is like where can I plug them into my life experience so that they learn what I've learned yes because I'm not going to give them some of these more traditional things, you know, things that we think of as traditional. I'm not going to give them those. So what other things can I give them and how can I lean in so that it doesn't benefit just the community at large and the world. It also benefits my five kids who really need me. I love that. And it feels to me that your faith has absolutely inspired you to act on these important issues and in brave ways and bold ways right? And so very quickly, if anyone is interested in getting involved in the policy project, what would you say? Yeah. Oh, join us. We need one of the reasons that we have success is just because people really are identifying and finding themselves within the walls of this idea of like good, healthy policy for our communities. So the policyproject.org, if you go on there, we've got all kinds of information about how to get involved. We'd love to have everyone. Thanks so much to my friend, Emily Bell McCormick. You are such an inspiration to me and so many others. And thanks for your encouragement and support in the work that I do as well. Thank you, Susan. It is such a delight to spend time with you. You are also someone that I admire greatly. So I appreciate it. What a great hour. Each week I give you a challenge. And this week I would like you to think about a few key life experiences and influences that have shaped you and your interests. And this could even be things that happen just in moments. In my research, I call these transformational moments and record one in your journal this week. Please follow Unleashing Sister Saints on Facebook and Instagram for more information and to stay up to date. If you like a particular episode or the show in general, please share it with others and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unleashing Sister Saints. This is Dr. Susan Madsen, and I'm devoted to unleashing the positive impact of Sister Saints on the world.